And our passage this morning is Joshua chapter 2. We're going to read the story of Rahab, the spies coming into the city of Jericho just before the city was sacked. It's a familiar story, but it would be good for us to revisit it again, especially as we're talking about the conquest of Canaan this morning. And we'll read verses 1 through 21. Young Christians, young theologians, this is kind of a difficult story. It's interesting, it's colorful, but there's one thing I want you to listen for, and you have to listen close, you have to listen deep to find the answer this morning. Why did almost everyone in Jericho have to die? That's the question. Almost everyone. And why were a few saved? Listen close and see if you can find the answer. This is the good news, the strange good news of holy war. And it's not the holy war you think. Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they've come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I didn't know who they were. I didn't know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went, but if you pursue them quickly... You may overtake them. But she'd brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. And before the spies lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon all of us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them. And deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will find you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. And then, afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. 
And then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in her window. Let's pray. And we should be like the Amorite kings and all who lived in Jericho, devoted to destruction. And the good news of the gospel is we were not. What should have happened did not. Mercy and love came instead. Show us again from this passage. Give us joy and peace and hope and love from it all. And all to Jesus in response to his grace upon us. And for these things we'll give you thanks. We ask it in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And would you be seated? The only thing to do after an exodus, a a dramatic mass exit, a, a leaving, a coming out and a coming away, the only thing left to do following an exodus is, is to find a place to put the people of the exodus, to find a place for them all to settle down. And that's what brings us to the conquest of Canaan, the promised land. Although some commentators prefer to soften it and call it the settlement of Canaan. But I think that's actually too soft. Because the only thing that stood in the way of the Israelites settling in Canaan was the people who already lived there. And not about to move over, the Canaanites would have to move out. They could do it voluntarily or they could do it arbitrarily. Didn't matter. Either way, they were in the market for new homes. Without even so much as a for sale sign posted in the front yard. Or a Sunday afternoon open house with fresh baked cookie air freshener sprayed thick over the place to make it smell sentimental and inviting. The Canaanites had no choice because Yahweh and his people were moving in. And that's how real estate worked in the ancient world. There were no listings. Great starter home with an excellent view of the valley. Meaning, this place is hard to get to, way too little square footage, and not nearly worth what we're going to ask for it. No asking prices, no offers, no counter offers, no inspections, no contingency clauses, no closings. None of the psychology and the gamesmanship and the sleight of hand that goes on in modern home buying and home selling. If you're in the market to buy or sell a home... The best you can hope for is a rube who will ask too little or give too much. But in the ancient world, if you had an eye for expansion, all you needed was an army and a benevolent God who was good in a fight. And that's why cities had walls. 
Because one morning, you might wake up and gazing bleary-eyed out your kitchen window as you pour your first cup of coffee, you might find yourself looking into the ranks of an army that pictured itself enjoying the good life in your two-story Victorian or mid-century modern or split-level ranch. So you'd sound the alarm and bar the gates and repel the borders and batten down the hatches. And when the smoke settled, with any luck, you might still be able to call the place your own. Although from the looks of it, the neighborhood would have gone to hell. It was a beautiful gospel story that sustained the Israelite those 40 years trudging through the desert. God had taken them from the land of slavery in Egypt where they'd been in bondage for 400 years and now he was carrying them to a land of promise, a land of milk and honey. It wasn't so much that he would give them the land of the place as much as he was giving them to himself there, as much as he was giving himself to them there. He'd live with them and love them and care for them in their midst But imagine how the hearts of the people sank as they arrived sore-footed at the border. And there sits the walled city of Jericho, tall, high, fortified. There's an enemy fortress in the middle of the land that's supposed to be theirs. An urban Goliath made of brick and mortar, mocking their God and the promise of grace he'd carried them in on. They'll never have peace if that enemy city doesn't fall. But this is kind of a bruise on our family history, isn't it? This is a very difficult section of scripture and series of passages to reckon with for globally minded people. How can we feel good about a part of our faith built upon the historical events of our forebears wiping out whole populations and seizing the land they lived in based on divine directive and divine promise. It's as bad as the westward expansion. Manifest destiny in our hearts and our eyes, so we loaded up covered wagons and we drove them in trains to the Pacific with all the land open to claim, except for the pesky Indians who already lived there. So we fought range wars. And when we'd spilled enough blood, we made ourselves feel more humanitarian by rounding them up and sacking them away on reservations. And we gave them liquor. We made them alcoholics to distract them. And we gave them gambling rights, casinos. We turned tribes into mob families. Three cheers for progress. Not a lot to feel proud of in any of that. But forget our national embarrassment. We have a potentially bigger problem. We have a theological embarrassment. God's goodness proclaimed through genocide. God's compassion and grace wrapped in massacre. That should trouble you. You should be unsettled now. Except for this. Just remember this. This is the same God who sent a reluctant missionary prophet 
reeked like a Greenland whale fishery because of his unlikely mode of transport. To the enemy city of Nineveh. And he proclaimed the good news to his enemies in that city, and the whole city repented. And while the Ninevites held revival services in the streets, the prophets sat outside the city limits on a hillside, angry and fuming and complaining over God's mercy to these people. And God said to his prophet that he was overjoyed to have granted faith and salvation and life to these people. He was, he was thrilled to have spared them from his judgment. And then thousands of years later, a different prophet, one who was the very word that he came to speak, and he smelled like heaven because of it, sat on a different hillside and gathered a crowd of people at his feet. And he said, God just wanted me to tell you, blessed are the peacemakers. And the people didn't get it because they lusted to have the Romans wiped out. But the point of it is, God's not genocidal. And he doesn't believe in ethnic cleansing. So how do we make sense of something like the conquest? By looking through the details of the stories to see what God does with the people in these stories. Because that's what he cares about. He doesn't care about land. He doesn't care about territory. He's not worried about the walled city fortress of Jericho. What he cares about is people. And it builds through the opening passages and chapters of Joshua. So in chapters 3 and 4, the people are cut off from the promised land by the Jordan River in its flood stages. And so the Ark of the Covenant is carried into the churning river and the waters peel back and pile up and the people pass through. And on the other side, when everyone is safe and sound, Joshua stacks up 12 river rocks as a memorial with this instruction. When your children ask, what do these stones mean? Say, the Lord has dried up the waters of the Jordan just as he did to the Red Sea. He did it again, in other words. And he did it that you may fear, you may love, you may rejoice in the Lord your God forever. Then in chapter 5, the people prepare for the battle, the coming war, in a very strange way. They worship. So the men of Israel are all circumcised. It's been generations since this has been done in Israel. And the men are circumcised, the very physical observance that was meant to signify a cutting away of unbelief, a cutting off and throwing away of stubbornness, a physical observance that pointed to a deep spiritual surgery of the heart. And then after circumcision, the people celebrate Passover, the holiday of the atonement, a festival of sins forgiven, opening into feasting and fellowship in the enormous love and mercy of God. And then after the Passover, on that evening, Joshua wanders away from the camp. He's out in the wild places by himself, going over the battle plan in his head, and he runs into a strange figure whose sword is drawn, and he's twirling it in his hand with an eerie readiness. And Joshua's hand moves to his own hilt just in case. And Joshua says, are you for us or for our enemies? 
And the figure says, no, I am the commander of the Lord's army. It's Jesus before his earthly birth. It's pre-incarnate Jesus. And his answer is strange. I'm for neither. I'm for my holiness. Whose side are you on, Joshua? And Joshua realizes he can't command holiness. He can only resist it or follow it. So he takes off his shoes and he falls on his face. And then there's Jericho. There's the marching around the city and the shout and the toppling of the walls. But then in chapter 7, Israel loses its very next battle at a place called Ai. It should have been a walkover. It was theirs. But one soldier, one lousy grunt, a man named Achan, took some of the plunder from the battle of Jericho. It was a terrible act of unbelief that what the Lord gives in grace isn't enough to satisfy you and you have to take more for yourself. And Achan and his whole family are put to death. A whole Israelite family executed. And if you stack it all up, it goes like this. In chapter 2 of Joshua... Mercy isn't just for Israelites. That's why we have the story of Rahab. And in chapter 7 of Joshua, judgment isn't just for Canaanites. And that's why we have the story of Achan. And everything in between shows us what God is really interested in. He's interested in hearts. This, This section of scripture, this group of Chapters is not about foreign policy. What it tells us is God makes war on sin. God's enemy is sin. But it tells us another very uncomfortable truth. And that is that sin lives in people. It has faces. It has names. It cloaks itself in our personality. That's where it shows itself. Two years ago, This month, there was a young lady who played soccer for the University of New Mexico, and she became a national villain for her dirty play in a conference tournament game. In a match against Brigham Young University, Elizabeth Lambert can be seen throwing kidney punches, punches to the face, elbows, she kicked, She tripped. She even yanked an opposing player to the ground by her ponytail. And she argued with the referee when he gave her a yellow card for her antics. But later, in an interview with the New York Times, she said, when I look at the film of the match, I say to myself, that's not me. Now, that's what we always want to say. But that was her. Sin was on the field that day, and it looked just like her. It wore her jersey, number 15. Sin is embodied. It doesn't exist in dark clouds, noxious vapors of ill behavior, and you just have to avoid walking through them and being poisoned by them. Now, sin is the disposition against God-likeness that lives in the hearts of people. 
And according to the story of Jericho, sometimes those hearts make themselves hard and resistant to the grace of God like city walls. And they'll fight to the last to shut the love of God out. The walls God wants to topple are the walls of our hearts, in other words. What God wants to conquer is not territory, not geography, not land, but hearts. To take hearts captive in love. Every heart is a holy war. And sometimes, sometimes He lets walled hearts wall themselves in entirely. And I can't explain that. But what I really can't explain is that at other times, He pulls the walls down and He pulls the hearts behind those walls into Himself, like in the case of Rahab. Rahab is a biography of conquest. She's the perfect picture of it. She's a prostitute, a lover for hire, Her trade is to give her customers everything and nothing. You understand? When she kisses her clients goodbye, lingering, bedroomed-eyed in her doorway, it's the emptiest kiss there is to drink. There's nothing in it. Rahab has very few loyalties because anyone can have her body, no one can have her heart. But something's happened. She tells the hiding spies that as the wildfire rumors of this God have burnt through the region, the hearts of the people have melted, and most have melted with fear, but hers with something else. Long ago, Rahab learned to numb herself, to do her job, to give herself away, and to feel nothing in it. But this news of this God has kindled embers of longing in her cold heart. She can't remember the last time she truly desired anything. And with the arrival of the Hebrew spies, to case the joint, to give it a look over before the war starts, it's like this God is whispering her name. He's knocking on her door, but not to hire her, to have her. Not to use her and leave her, but to claim her and love her. Not to take anything from her, but to give himself to her. Rahab couldn't write you a treatise on justification. She couldn't speak eloquently about the operations of salvation. She couldn't speak of the doctrine of effectual calling. But what she knew came washing out of her eyes in salty sheets of desperation and faith and hope as she spoke with the spies hiding on her rooftop in verse 11. The Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth. You hear what she's saying? Your God is greater than our God's. And she knows this coming God conquers all that stands in His way. But maybe, maybe He won't only conquer with judgment. Maybe He'll conquer with grace. And of all people to give His grace to, a girl from the red light district. Ah, she's the perfect recipient for grace. She's dirty and unclean. 
She can't change herself. She's not an upstanding member of the community. No one looks up to her. No one says they want their daughters to grow up to be just like her. When people come to see her, they sneak off to see her. In secret, they hire her services. She doesn't bring righteousness out of anyone. She's a playground of sin. And of all the people in Jericho who might be worth saving, Rahab is last on the list. And that's grace. Love that doesn't deny guilt and love that isn't deterred by guilt. Love that can't be bought or sold or bargained with. Love that has its own purposes. Love that insists on filling what's empty. And the illogical, wonderful grace that came to Rahab was a red rope hanging out of her window. It was her Passover. Rahab's rope was the same red-soaked cry for forgiveness that went up through Jesus' body hanging on the cross. You see the connection? With the city falling all around her, Rahab was suspended in the gospel. She was kept from falling by a red braided promise dangling from her window that was a picture of the one who would fall for her. Somehow, in the Israelite voices that shook the walls of Jericho to ground level, Rahab heard the shout of Jesus from the cross. His dying cry was the shout that brought down the worst walls there are. Not just the walls of your hearts. But the cry of Jesus from the cross brought down the walls of God's own heart that close sinners out. The law we can't keep. The righteousness we can't perform. The worship we can't render. The per the perfect sacrifice we don't have in ourselves to offer, the justice that we can't satisfy or coax smiles from, death we can't intimidate and chase away. And all of them God gleefully tore down brick by eternal brick in the body of Jesus. Jesus is our Jericho. He's torn down and we no longer have to shut this God out because He no longer shuts us out. This judging God has ruled for us in love. It's how the gospel story always goes. There's never a saint who wasn't first a shame and a scandal. Prostitutes who give up on prostitution because they find something better. Every converted heart is actually a conquered heart. And that's what the gospel does with us. It convinces us that the walls we put up and live behind won't hold. They can't keep us. They don't protect us. They don't love us. This gossip of this God who fiercely loved his people reached Jericho and drifted through the streets on worried whispers and even made its way to Rahab's bedroom as she worked. She sensed what she was missing. She had an endless line of Johns and tricks. At the same time, she was wildly popular and unwanted. She always had a stack of bills left on the dresser, but a hollow, loveless soul. 
a fierce independence and a lonely ache. She had always been her own woman and she didn't want to be anymore. She wouldn't dream of darkening the door of any church because whores don't exactly fit at potlucks and prayer meetings, but news of this God somehow made her want to fit, made her want to fit Him. And the walls of her native city seem paper thin. And even more than that, the armored walls of her heart felt like sandcastles, unable to keep this God out. I don't know what walls you build in your heart for defense. I don't know what you brick yourself up behind. But there's something. What fear, what resentment, what jealousy, what entitlement, what self-preservation, what hurt, what grudge, what narrative of victimization, what self-pity, what disappointment. I don't know what you use to make yourself feel safe. But I know this, the strongest, most fortified walls crumble under the weight of love. And the only thing that will bring you out from behind your walls is the perfect, unceasing, redeeming love. The love that loves you in your failures, in your faults, in your weaknesses, in your character deformities. The love of Jesus that loves you as you are, but won't leave you as you are. And maybe that's what it feels like to come out from behind our walls. To not lock ourselves away in a past life that the Savior is calling us out of. When Rahab left Jericho, who she was, what she had been, was left buried under slabs of stone, blocks of concrete, twisted rebar. She can't be a prostitute anymore. Prostitutes in Israel are stoned. And that's the challenge for many of us, skeptics and Christians, to believe that that Jesus can love us so fully that He loves us out of our past. The past, whatever ours happens to be, helps make us who we are, but it can't keep us. Not the hurts, not the wounds, not the shame, not the disastrous decisions we've made, not even our past successes and glories. Maybe, maybe what it feels like to leave our walls is to not hide ourselves away from an unseen future the Savior is calling us into. Like, Rahab and her bewildered, shaken family, helped by Israelite hands to pick their way over the rubble and step into a promise as big as the horizon. But what that promise holds for Rahab, she has no idea. She can't know that she'll get married and have a family. And she'll be a great-grandmother of David, the king. She can't know that she'll be the ancestress of the greater David, Jesus the King of Righteousness, Jesus the King of Atonement, Jesus the King of Salvation. She can't know that righteousness is one day going to come from her body. She can't know that she'll be remembered forever in the letter to the Hebrews as a woman who once had no faith, And then was given a faith that brought a city to the ground. 
She knows none of this as she jumps down from a pile of tumbled stone. She could only know that God loves her no matter what he gives her. And on this side of the story, we sit in our padded theater seats and we say, well, of course, God's just that loving. Really? If God is just that loving, then why don't you trust him to love you today? You, you don't. You still build your walls and fight for them. That's why you're so whiny and complainy and judgy. Why don't you trust him to love you today? Why don't you trust him to love you in your tomorrows? If your God has torn down the walls of his heart, you don't need to guard yours anymore. You don't need to be afraid of life with all of its mysteries and its plot twists and its terrifying uncertainties and hide behind your walls if what awaits you on the other side of those walls is a loving sovereignty, a sovereignty that works for you and fights for you in everything. That's the confidence that thunders through the conquered heart. Who tells the story of Jericho and the story of our hearts best, do you think? All week I've been looking for it. I've been scouring children's Bibles and commentators and theologians and church fathers and devotional writers. And I think I found it. The one who tells the story best is Jack Nicholson. Playing the role of Marine Colonel Nathan Jessup in the film A Few Good Men. It's in the climactic closing scene. Colonel Jessup is called to take the stand at the court-martial. Lieutenant Caffey is needling him with questions. And the colonel hisses through his sneering teeth. We live in a world of walls, and those walls need defending. And that's the story of every heart in the theater this morning. You tell the end of the story of Jericho better than anyone. Because you have the gospel. And when Jesus walks through your life, when he marches around you and claims you as his own, and when he shouts from his cross, your walls collapse. And your heart is his. And nothing has ever felt so good or so right as to be conquered. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh Lord Jesus, we keep pressing ourselves to guard and govern our own lives to be able to maintain ourselves and to love ourselves fully enough that we don't actually have to do the terrifying work of putting our hearts in your hands and depending upon your love alone. When will we learn that our hearts are broken Our view and eyesight, our understanding is broken. 
our version of love is so twisted and mangled that many times it doesn't look like love at all. And when will we learn that you love us deepest and best? Make it soon. Conquer our hearts, bring down our walls. Many of us, most of us, are still hiding and defending the walls that we build. And behind those walls, we can't truly enjoy the love and the peace and the grace of Jesus. We are Rahab. We have very neat and tidy versions of prostitution. We try to buy and sell with you in ways that are not possible. Instead, allow us to see that we can only bow before you in humility and weakness and need and have the love of Jesus lavished upon us. Give to us this, and by it make us glad. And now, church, along with the church in every age, what is it that you say you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.